You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. 2 Kings chapter 22. I may or may not have purposely had Rodney read that passage just to watch him fumble through the pronunciation of those words earlier. But uh, there are some crazy names in this passage. And as you're turning there, you know, I was reminded in preparation for this week of when I was a little kid, uh, my mom always taught me that the Bible was precious. And uh, when I was a kid, if you ever dropped your Bible, you were supposed to pick it up and clutch it to your heart. And, and then before you do that, you're supposed to kiss it, like wipe it off, as if like the dust somehow affects the sovereignty of God. And so um, I pick up the Bible, and as a kid, you know, I'd wipe it off, and I'd, I'd look at my mom, mommy, I got it to my heart, you know, like, Mwah, I love it, right? And then um, somehow you would think as, as I grew up that like that tradition would stop, but it didn't. Um, I'll never forget, I was in high school one time, um, and that happened at church in the hallway, and I just picked it up, and my mom stops in front of, like, a sea of friends. Well, are you going to kiss it? You know, just that, that, in that moment of, like, okay, whatever, you know. And I thought about that, and I thought, man, like, it's not so much the act of kissing my Bible or clutching it to my chest, but that was used to communicate a truth in my life that God's word is to be precious to us. God's word should be everything to us. It's the way in which God has chosen to communicate with his people. And so um, 2 Kings 22, uh, as you turn there, you'll see in verse 1 that Josiah is chosen as a king to lead the people of God as an eight-year-old boy. His reign begins as an eight-year-old. And and during his reign, um, he he has a passion to bring the people of God together. out of really a desolate place spiritually. He, he, is, uh, he is taking the throne after a succession of kings who were uh, among the worst kings in history in the eyes of God. Uh, men like Manasseh, who literally set up what were called Asherah poles. These were poles that they put, uh, they're totem-like poles that they put on the, the highest points in the city uh, to offer their bodies to these sex gods. And he is coming into power with these kinds of things that have already been put into place. And at this point, there's little, if any, resistance whatsoever to the moral erosion of God's people. And so naturally, his heart is bent towards wanting to restore the people of God and bring them back to a right understanding of his word. And so he was worried. He desired to be a good king. We see in verse 2, it tells us that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David, his father. He did not turn aside to the right or the left. Josiah wanted to lead his people out of darkness. So he thought to help rebuild and renovate the temple. The temple that was once the literal physical manifestation of the presence of God that had been desolate and destroyed. He sought to help rebuild and restore restore and help renovate uh, the temple because he knew that that was the foundation for the people of Judah, for the people of Israel in the first place. And so he wants to uh, set out on this journey to do just that. He wants to make this place of worship a priority for the people of God. And his results were not disappointing. Look in verse 8. 
In verse 8, it says, Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. So they bring it to King Josiah, and in verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. This is a sign of mourning, a sign of deep anguish. Josiah is literally grieving the heart of God because of his sin and the sins of his people. So what does he do in verse 13? He says, go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. He says to gather the entire country, bring the whole country together, have God's word read before everyone and instruct them to obey exactly what's been written. If you think about it, that's what happens here every week. We gather to hear the word of the Lord so that we will leave and obey what's been read and what's been written. The only catch is, I can't remember the last time Rodney tore his outer garments on stage, uh, although I think that would be a, a beautiful sight. But can, can you just imagine this scenario for a moment? Just the word of God was missing. It was literally missing. It was nowhere to be found. It was lost. Most people had forgotten it even existed. Generations had gone by at this point, unsure if what they had heard as a child was just a myth or if it was actually true. People had grown up their whole life never hearing the word of the Lord. And these were supposed to be the people of God, buried away in rubble, in the ruins of some unattended church of the temple, lay the very words of God. I'll never forget the night that Jesus rescued my heart. February 28, 2006. It was a Tuesday night. I can't forget that because it was season five of American Idol. Now, this was back when people actually watched the show, um, and it was good. And uh, I played college football, and all the guys used to gather in my dorm because back then we had what was called a flat screen TV when it came out. And so we'd watch American Idol and it was like clockwork every Tuesday. And I remember this night in particular, it's as if the Lord plucked each one of those men out of my room individually so I'd be left there alone because the Lord up until this point had been wooing me and drawing me to his presence. He had orchestrated two men in particular that are some of my best friends today to really uh, show me, man, just a passion for the Lord and for his word. And up until this point, I had been running from the Lord. I had been ignoring the Lord, afraid of a call on my life and what that might look like. But that night, the Lord, found, the Lord found me. He knew where I was, and I was awakened to his presence, only to realize that he wanted to speak to me. And so to get away, I knew I had to go talk to him somewhere. I knew the Lord was beckoning me. So a walk around campus began where I found myself in a little old chapel in the second to last row on a pink cushioned pew. And that late night, I remember opening God's word for the first time since I could remember. And it's as if the words began to jump off the page at me, like antelope. The word of God came to life. I got up three hours later in tears, and my heart was different, all because of the time I had spent in God's word. But if I rewind that story, I'm in the dorm room. 
and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, the Lord wants to speak to me. I have to get away. So what do I do? Like, what does that look like? Um, find my Bible. At that point, I couldn't even remember if I had a Bible, if I had packed it away for college. I remember looking through drawers in my room in my closet, that massive 12 by 14 dorm room. <laughs> Lo and behold, pillaging through, uh, through all of my stuff, I, I found a plastic tub under my bed. And buried in the midst of a bunch of junk at the bottom of that plastic tub was a Bible. One that I'm confident my mom probably packed away before I left for college. I look back on that night. This was second semester freshman year. I've been in college almost eight months. And this entire time, I had no idea of the location of my Bible. I didn't even know it existed and that I had one on me. How does this happen? How does a young boy who's raised in a church to know and love God's truth ignore his word for nearly a year? How does an entire nation, a people of God, drift so far away from the Lord that the very word of God was lost? You know, it's impossible to lose a Bible nowadays, or at least not have access to one. You can find access to thousands of Bibles. It's the most widely circulated book ever printed. You can find it in paper format, digital format. Some of you have it on your iPads or iPhones this morning. Others of you have special editions. You can get any translation you want. You can get the ESV study Bible, the apologetics Bible. You can get your leather cover Bible. You can get moose hide covered Bible, your eagle talon covered Bible, your diamond plated coated Bible. There's so many Bibles for us to choose from. I highly doubt we have a shortage of those to which we're going to not have access to one. But I'll tell you what grieves my heart even more than losing our Bible is not just having lost a tangible access to the word of God. I think that I would even contend that our neglect of God's word is even worse. The Bible has a lot to say about itself. Namely, that this is infinite in wisdom, immeasurable in power. It's endless in its understanding. 1 Peter 1.25 says, the word of the Lord is forever. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. The psalmist says in 139, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. Vast. It's an interesting word. The dictionary defines vast as an adjective. A very great extent or quantity. It's an immense amount. Synonyms to include immeasurable, limitless, infinite, or boundless. The the vast word of God. And so I want to actually let uh, this acronym this morning serve as a guide against the backdrop of our understanding of the Bible. And through, uh, through this acronym, I actually just want to ask us four questions this morning. I want to ask us four questions. And the first one is this. How do we view the Bible? How do we view it? In other words, what's its purpose? When we look at God's word, when we look at the Bible, man, what comes to mind? Scripture provides for us a few metaphors. We see that it's a sword. Hebrews 4.12 says it's sharper than any double-edged sword. Ephesians 6.17 says the word of God is the sword of the spirit. You know, when an athlete enters into a stadium, 
The game hasn't started yet. The stands have not filled. The field is empty. He hasn't put his pads on yet. But he walks into the, into the tunnel and he sees the field for what it is. He begins to envision in his mind what the game will look like. He walks through the plays in his head, the pass routes, the formations, the way the defense lines up. He pictures in his head the snap count and what the play will look like as it develops and how he'll lead his, field, his team down the field. He begins to envision that. And he gets into the details of it. But at the end of the day, if he, if, he, if he looks up for just a moment, takes a 30,000 foot view over the field, and he looks at the stadium, he knows the purpose of all of this. The reason he's there is to win. So at the end of the day, he knows he has a purpose. When we look at God's word, we ask ourselves, man, what is this? What's its purpose? Scripture gives another metaphor as we see, some might see it as a rule book. Leviticus 18 says, You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Psalm 119.11, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is here to help me uh, protect myself against doing wrong. It's a rule book to show me the right way to go. Or it's a road map. Another metaphor. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp into my feet, a light into my path. Proverbs 3, 6, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. John 10, 4 refers to Jesus as our shepherd and he leads his sheep with his voice. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. We see it as a roadmap, but essentially, however we view it, some of us might view it as a metaphor. Others of us might view these 66 books authored by over 40 different people over the course of 1,200 years through more than 10 literary genres written on three continents, compiled of two testaments, others of us might look at it from that lens and say, it is a single narrative authored by God. Because that's exactly what it is. It's God's story of offering redemption to the world through Jesus Christ. The purpose of the Bible is this, redemption. And it is through this lens that we must always view God's word. Sally Lloyd-Jones was quoted as saying that the Bible is the story of how God loves his children and has come to rescue them. Before we even begin to approach God's word, we have to see it for what it is. The purpose of the Bible is redemption from cover to cover. It's the historically redemptive story of Jesus entering into earth to redeem us to himself. And that's how we view God's word. The next question I would ask this morning is, um, how should we approach the Bible? How should we approach God's word? I mean, we view it for what it is, but now as we walk up to it, much like a quarterback walks up to the line of scrimmage, the play is about to begin, and he has a confidence in, his, in himself and his own abilities, but especially he knows that uh, the team has assignments, the coaches have put together a plan, a game plan for what this will look like. He quiets the crowd, but he has, and especially he has a knowledge of the defense. He has an understanding of his opponent, knowing that their strategy and their formation, what their objective is, that helps him in his pursuit of his mission. In much the same way, it's important for us to be aware of our enemy. J.I. Packer says this, if I were the devil... One of my first aims would be to stop folks from digging into the Bible. Let's just think about that for a second. 
His sole mission is to steal, kill, and destroy and to rip us away from his very presence. And the way we experience his presence most is through his word. So what does he want to do? He wants to take us away from that. He's going to find any means necessary to accomplish it. It's important for us to be aware of that as we approach God's word. But as we look at how we approach God's word, I want us to do two things. Take a look internally to examine our hearts, to see what's the posture of our heart when we begin to open the Bible and examine his truths. Posture of our heart. And the second thing we'll do is look externally. But first, let's look internally. Matt Smethurst, who's an author and an editor of Gospel Coalition, uh, had a, a really good article regarding um, ways to approach the Lord. And I took some of these, and I, I want to walk us through some of them this morning and connect them with Scripture. I believe the first way for us to approach God's Word is humbly. It's only through God's Word that we can know who He is. It's only through the Bible that we know what He's like or what He demands. It's how we can know Him. And if that's the case, this should humble us. Theologian Carl Henry said, the God of heaven and earth has forfeited his personal privacy to, bef to befriend us through a book. The Bible's like this all-access pass into the revealed mind and will of God. And this should humble us as we approach him. I, I got to preach a youth camp one time. And... Uh, I talked about this idea of God's word being an all-access pass. And I, I tried to make a, a connection with students regarding uh, concerts and backstage passes. And I, I use an analogy like, girls, can you imagine getting an all-access backstage pass to hang out with Taylor Swift? And all the girls are like freaking out, right? Like, oh my goodness, right? And then afterwards, I'm trying to let them know, hey, you know, God's word is a lot more important than, you know, Taylor Swift, but they didn't get it. But afterwards in the hallway... This, this, these girls, like a pack of wild wolves, come running towards me, and they're huffing. And they're, they, I said, you don't understand. I'm like, what? She had an all-access backstage pass with Taylor Swift. So this girl actually got, she was floored. She was talking about her experience. She got to hang with this pop artist and talk with her and take selfies and, you know, ask about what's her favorite sonic drink, you know, cherry limeade. And, and, and she was just thrilled to get to meet her backstage. She knew all these little details and at the end of the day, I think to myself, man, like, I, I, I would love for us to be able to approach God in much the same way. Like, he's given us an all-access backstage pass to his presence, to sit at his feet and bask in his glory and soak up what it is he wants to say to us. And that should humble us. We should also approach God's word desperately. Having rehearsed God's law one final time before his death, Moses looks at the people of Israel and he says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 47, these are not just idle words for you, they are your life. Jesus declares in Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. The psalmist in 119, 20 and 31, ate to hear the words of God. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times, he exclaimed. I cling to your testimonies. I open my mouth and I pant because I long for your commandments. Our souls will wither and die without the Bible. So we should approach it desperately. We should also approach it studiously. In past generations, 
people would do something very strange to communicate. Um, students in the room, it's called um, writing a letter. Humans would take a utensil with lead or ink, and they would begin to construct letters that would form words, that would actually begin to form paragraphs, and they would write on pieces of paper when they wanted to communicate something to somebody. You remember, you know, when you used to get a letter in the mail. It was incredible, right? I mean, emails destroyed that for us. Like, there's something so special about reading a handwritten letter. It's personal, right? You walk through it, and there's just something to it. Have you ever gotten a love letter? Have you ever written a love letter? The answer to that is no, you're not living. Go home and write one to your spouse. Put it under her pillow. I had my share of letters to Sarah when we were dating, although Facebook was huge. Preaching to the choir here, I know. When we started dating. But I'll never forget when we were dating and we had just started talking and we were exchanging Facebook back and forth. I would, when class was over, I had to run back to my dorm to get Wi-Fi. And I would open up my computer and I'm just, I'm, I'm refresh, refresh, you know, like, did, did, she, did she respond to me? Did she respond yet? You know, and I would, I would just wait, you know, and no, not yet, you know. And I, for an hour, two hours, I'm waiting to get something in my inbox, you know, to see that she's set. And then when I did get it, the world would stop. And I was just, like, a, I mean, just one track mind. Like, you, Ed McMahon could have walked in and I told him to get his butt out of the room because I was focused on what she wrote to me. And I would just, every word, first word, hello. <laughs> like, how did she mean that? Was it like Adele, like, hello? <laughs> you know, or was it kind of like, just like a hello? I would examine the words and their meaning and I would, I, I would, I would yearn to be able to pick apart that letter studiously. Psalmist says in 111, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. The New Testament also commends engaging scripture with delicate care. The Bereans in Acts chapter 17, they examined God's word with, with eagerness every day. And they asked questions to see if it was true. And they were praised for this. We should approach God's word studiously because it's the greatest love letter ever written. We should also approach God's word obediently. The psalmist didn't just long to understand God's commands. He wanted to obey them. Psalm 119, four through five, you have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Give me understanding that I may keep your law, and obey it with all of my heart. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. The New Testament reinforces this sense of urgency in submitting to Scripture and being obedient to his word. 1 John chapter 2, whoever says, I know God, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Or as James simply urges in chapter one, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Approach it obediently. But any parent in the room knows that while you, yes, desire for your kids to be obedient, you want them to do it with joy. We should also approach God joyfully. You know, your kids can 
obey what you ask but not do it joyfully. They can stew in their frustration. They can pout in their anger. They can stomp their feet. You can hear their sigh across the kitchen. (sighs) And at the end of the day, you're getting obedience, but it's not as satisfying as knowing that they would do it joyfully. We should not just approach God's word with obedience, but with a joyful heart. Real obedience flows from love and joy. We see this in John 14, 15, where Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. If you love me. Sitting down to open the Bible can seem like such a chore sometimes. It really can. It's like, man, I don't know if I have time for this. Man, it's just, I'd rather, you know, pop this on the TV. Or, or, or it's just, man, it's just, you know, oh, Leviticus, great, you know. Um, it, we don't always have the mindset of the psalmist in chapter 1 who says, my delight is in the law of the Lord. Yeah, well, most of you probably aren't very delightful when you first wake up. And that's not what you want to delight in. But I would encourage us to that direction. The psalmist can't get enough of God's word. So if joy is non-existent, here's what we do. We plead for it. And we fight for it. And we ask God to renew in our hearts a joy to seek his word. Next, we approach God's word confidently or expectantly. Not not with a personal confidence in who we are or with our abilities, but in who God is and what he's done and what he's about to do in our hearts. Galatians 6.14, this is like my life verse. Paul says, I will boast in nothing except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we approach God's word, we know that scripture tells us we can expect something from him. Because 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all of God's word, it's breathed out by God. It's inspired by God. And it's profitable, or yours might say, it's useful for four things. Teaching, correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness. You know what's interesting about these four uses? Not one of them is used to make us feel good about ourselves. To have to teach something means to learn something you don't already understand. To correct is to alter what's going on in your life. To rebuke is to flat out turn from your sin. To train is to prepare for something that you're not quite there and ready for yet. Because at the end of the day, God's word is not used to make us happy. It's used to make us holy. And so since the ultimate author of the Bible is God, we know it has unlimited power to change hearts. The entire book is an encouragement to us. Even the parts we don't understand or don't like as much. All of scripture is an encouragement to us. Even Leviticus. Even Zechariah. Paul says this in Romans 15. He says in verse 4, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Everything to instruct, encourage, and flood the believer's heart with hope. William Carey, great missionary to China, was quoted as saying, expect great things from God. Let's approach his word with the expectation and the confidence that he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine this year. It should be obvious at this point, after everything we've considered, that we should also indeed approach God's word frequently. The psalmist says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation 
all the day. This should be our priority. This is our daily bread. And so as we look internally, as we approach God's word, this is how we should do it. To examine our hearts and ask God to bring about the posture of our heart in such a way that we do approach his word humbly. That we do approach his word in confidence and in obedience and in joy and studiously and frequently. But then externally, now what? Because if, what, what does the plan look like? What's the plan? How do, we, how do we do this? Well, simply put, we have to develop one. We have to develop an actual plan. Something tangible that gives us accountability to the Bible. Our pastors on staff, our elders, have already supplied for us a plan to help encourage everyone in this direction. Most of you this morning, when you walked in, should have received uh, one of these. And if you didn't, you can get one on the way out at the doors from the ushers. You can grab one in the lobby at the front desk, or you can access the link on the city. But this is a Bible reading plan that will essentially take and guide our church through all of God's word in 2016. And you know what our heart's desire is? Is that as a church family, we would do this together. We would engage God's word and walk through the Bible. Each day, we're gonna get either a, an Old Testament passage, a Psalm, or a New Testament passage. We encourage you to read God's word personally. Make a plan to read it personally, but also make a plan to read it publicly. Read it with your family. Fathers, read it with your sons. Mothers, read it with your daughters. Husbands, read this with your wives. Home groups, read this together so that we can encourage each other all the more in what God's doing through us this year. Let's read God's word in whatever way we can. And then, after we develop a plan, let's stick to it. Let's stick to the plan. In college, uh, I, I did almost everything you could imagine. I wanted to be a part of every club that was you know, multicultural club, if it was student senate, if it was intramurals, I played college football. I wanted to be a part of every organization, campus ministries, to go on the mission trips. I was a part of everything. I wanted to experience it all. I don't want to leave and not leave anything out. So my senior year, I asked myself, what have I not done? Light bulb. Theater. <laughs> I've never done theater. Oh, this would be epic. And I saw, so... Literally, that day, I asked somebody about it. They go, bro, today's the last day of tryouts for this play. I'm like, which play? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. No. I take off across campus. I walk in. Auditions had closed. Didn't care. Bust up in the door. Directors were evaluating. I said, excuse me, I, I need to try out. They asked me why. I said, I haven't done it. And so I get on stage. I try out. Lo and behold, I land one of the leading roles as the villain of the captain and the white witch's army. I'm the wolf, okay? Perfect for me. I'm the wolf, right? Theater's awesome, okay? Maybe you don't think so, but man, for me, like it was like, it was a rush. And uh, I tell you what, we had this play down pat. You have to rehearse so much. It's crazy what goes into theater. Makeup, costumes, lines, blocking. It's, it's insane, right? Well, we, we, did, we did the normal plays for, for the school, right? Friends come laugh at you, make fun of you. Uh, you have a blast, but then you, like, you perform. And you go like regional competitions. And we won like a regional competition. At the end of the year, I actually won like this award for like best supporting actor. And so I'm like, I'm going to Hollywood, right? <laughs> and I'll never forget, we, we, we came back from competition. I'm 
chest pride. I'm like, man, this is, this is awesome. We had one last play to do. And every year we do a children's play. Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. And we perform it for all the elementary school kids in the city. And so the entire room is full of little kids. Youngest kids are in the front, oldest kids in the back. Like five and six-year-olds, kindergarten, first grade in the front row, okay? I thought to myself, nope, I'm not changing my approach. <laughs> I'm best supporting actor. And uh, I'm the captain in the White Witch's Army. And so these kids are gonna get my absolute best. I'm not dumbing this down for these elementary school kids. I'm sticking to the plan. Well, my whole role is like this villainous, evil, scary-looking dude. They've got my makeup all changed. I have a tail. I have claws, okay? I mean, I grew my hair out. I have like a fro. And, uh, man, I have this little hunched-over walk with this raspy voice and saliva's coming out, fake blood all over my face. And um, at one point, I jump off this roof, and I land on Tumnus. He's that little fawn, like little human horse, right? And my objective is to, like, in this moment, like scare him, like almost kill him and like slice his throat, right? And I jump out and I'm screaming like a wolf and I land on top of him. You, the most blood-curdling scream from six-year-olds I've ever heard in my entire life. The next 10 minutes, every teacher in the district was consoling six-year-olds. I couldn't change anything. In that moment, I, I, once I realized what happened, I wanted to be like, it's okay, I'm a good wolf, you know? But I couldn't do it. I had to stick to the plan, right? And so, man, much the same way, man, like, let's not just make a plan. Let's stick to it. John Piper says this. He says, few things discourage us more from reading the Bible through a year than falling behind. And it's so easy to fall back on your word. A couple weeks ago, I'm sitting on the couch with my wife. It's college football bowl season. Amen. And... Um, watching one of the games. And you know how sometimes you think a thought through like 90% and it's like really good. And then other times it's like a 10% thought. This is one of those moments because I said, man, just flipping through. She's just, just chilling, just top of my head. We should just get rid of direct TV for the next six months. And I, I keep talking and I said, you know, just, you know, help save money and just ha have better time together at night. And so a couple days ago, uh, New Year's Eve, our two-year contract ends, and uh, my wife just walks in just so gracefully, so beautifully, so eloquently. Honey, are you going to call today and cancel DirecTV? It's like a dagger to my heart. Talk about an idol, you know? And so it's like in that moment, I wanted to revert on what I said. And I'm thankful for the accountability of my wife and the desire for her to want us to have better time spent as a family. Don't get me wrong. National Championships in eight days. I'm watching Bama destroy Clemson. Okay, roll tide. I'm just saying. But, but, man, there's just something to be said there. Don Whitney in his book, Spiritual Discipline, says this. Because before I read it, I mean, you'd be surprised how, how easy it is for us to read through God's word. We see it as this exhausting, daunting thing. It's so many words, so many pages. Surely, like, we couldn't do it in a year. Here's what Don Whitney says. You may be surprised how doable it is. It takes about 70 hours to read the Bible from cover to cover. I'm just trying to picture like timer, <laughs> 70 hours. That's less time than the average American spends in front of the television every month. In other words, if most people would exchange their TV time for scripture reading, they'd finish reading the entire Bible in four weeks or less. 
If that sounds unworkable, consider this. In no more than 15 minutes a day, you can read through the Bible in less than a year's time. So let's, let's approach God's word with a plan and let's stick to it. The next question I wanna ask you is this. How do we study the Bible? Like we know what the purpose is of redemption. Okay, now we have a plan and we're gonna stick to it. But now what? Like how do we actually do it? Because there's, there's a difference in reading the Bible and studying the Bible. We should do both, right? Uh, Sarah and I started reading through the book of Mark uh, a couple weeks ago. And um, uh, I'm going to have to change some things in the way we read because uh, I, I was really excited about this. Like, we're going to walk through a book now and not just like topical stuff and something new we want to do together. And uh, we get to the part where Mary and Joseph travel, you know, to Bethlehem because they have to do it for Caesar's whatever, census. And I'm thinking to myself, how far was that travel? The next 45 minutes of our quiet time was me spent with a ruler measuring the scale and the atlas in the back of my Bible to figure out how far they traveled and then go to my map quest and plug it in and try and get some kind of idea of like Mary traveled on a donkey from the Target and Waxahachie to Salina High School. That's like 72 miles away. That's crazy, right? Sarah's over here snoring, okay? So just be, be mindful of like what that looks like and how to study, right? But as we do look intently, that can bring things to life. That's exciting when we study God's word together. Um, but if we do yearn to go deeper, what does that look like? How do we go about understanding? One process that we encourage in home groups is the REAP method. Simple acronym, R-E-A-P, REAP. And the first one, R there, is to read. There's several ways to read your Bible. You can read it silently, you can read it out loud, you can do it digitally, paperback copies. Uh, you can uh, read it in a quiet place or even on the go. I have a friend who shall remain nameless who laminates his paper of God's word, puts it in a shower so it's waterproof. He's got it wherever he goes. Okay, uh, more power to you. Um, you know, maybe you love Bible on audio. For me, I know I don't look like it. I started running this past year. And uh, man, I love to listen to the Bible on audio. It clears my head when I run. And that's kind of my way to read through it, right? Um, not so much in the weight room. It just feels weird when you hear like, and Abimelech walks into the city. And I'm like, Abimelech walks into the city. Just doesn't fit the same way. So however you choose to do it, I just wanna encourage you, man, engage God's word and begin to read. Now here's the deal. Many of us begin to read God's word. Here's what we wanna do. We wanna automatically jump to application. It's like, man, today, man, I'm gonna read. Okay, the Amalekites killed all of them. All right, today I'm gonna kill all that stuff I have to do today. Like, like that's not exactly what's going on there. Like, we wanna take a passage and we wanna connect it to a personal application immediately. And we can't always do that. And, and some of the best examples I have would be uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. Uh, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, give you a hope and a future. This verse is on every piece of high school graduation equipment in Christian bookstores. It's on every coffee cup you can imagine in Christian bookstores, right? We love this verse. But if you look at it, I've literally heard people like quote this to their kids leaving for college, like, honey, you can do this. Jeremiah 29, 11, 4.0, first semester of college. You're gonna find Christ-exalting friends ring by spring. How do you get that from Jeremiah 29, 11? Like, like, let's look at the context. Like in this situation, this passage is being read publicly to an entire nation as God says, don't worry, I'm about to send you into exile for 70 years. 
we can see these things if we just look at the surrounding context. Philippians 4.13. If Bible verses were movie characters, this one's Rocky. Because he runs around fist in the air accomplishing the world. I can do all things. Where's a roof? I'm a fly right now. R. Kelly, I believe I can fly. We take passages and we, we, we try and make them fit to what we think to apply them to ourselves. This verse is plastered everywhere. It's wrestling matches, T-shirts, football players' faces. But the simple interpretation is understood by the surrounding context. Paul can endure anything because he's satisfied in Christ. Scott Duvall and Danny Hayes, professors of biblical studies, wrote a book called Grasping God's Word. I highly recommend it. It's an incredible book for uh, interpreting God's Word. And uh, here's what they say. Many Christians today, nonetheless, frequently employ an intuitive or feels-right approach to interpretation. If the text looks as if it could be applied directly, then they attempt to apply it directly. If not, then they take a spiritualizing approach to the meaning, an approach that borders on allegorizing the biblical text, which shows little or no sensitivity to the actual context. Or else they simply shrug their shoulders and move on to another passage, ignoring the meaning of the text altogether. A consistent approach should allow us to dig into any passage with a method to determine the meaning of that text for us today. Our goal is to grasp the meaning of the text God has intended. We do not create meaning out of a text. Rather, we seek to find the meaning that is already there. But how do we do that, Jeff? I should encourage you, you don't have to be a New Testament Greek scholar to understand God's word. Here's how Martin Luther does it. He describes it this way. I study my Bible as I gather my apples. I'm sure not many of us have that luxury, but just roll with the analogy. First, I shake the entire tree that the ripest might fall. Then I shake each limb. And when I have shaken each limb, I shake each branch and every twig. Then I look under every leaf. I search the Bible as a whole, like shaking the whole tree. So I shake every limb. I study book after book. Then I shake every branch, giving attention to the chapters when they do not break the sense. Then I shake every twig or a careful study of the paragraphs and sentences and words and their meanings. And our REAP method, this is the E, this is where we examine God's word. Let's spend time looking intently into what God has given us. And there's simple ways to do this. I would, I would start by, if you're new to this or you're not sure what this process looks like, ask the five W's. Who? What? Where? When? Why? How? And the H. So ask yourself those questions to pull out what's going on in the passage. Just write them out. Ask them. Answer those questions. Look for literary devices, things like repetition. You read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, prime example. You'll see the word comfort like 16 times. I think there's a pattern there. God's trying to tell us he's the God of all comfort. And through his spirit will produce in us comfort in all circumstances. There's repetition there. We can pull that out. Or in John 14 through John 16, in three chapters, six times in the upper room, Jesus tells his disciples, if you remain in me, I will remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. We can find important truths through repetition. Look at similes and metaphors, devices that are used to create comparisons, the kingdom of God is like a vineyard. Jesus says in John 15, this is a metaphor, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
cause and effect. John 15, if you remain in me, then I will remain in you. We can look at these things. Finally, I would encourage you in this. In your study of God's word, don't skip over the parts you don't like. We don't get to pick and choose what parts of the Bible we think we like that we want to apply to ourselves. Sinclair Ferguson, theologian, says this. It is the whole Bible which was given to make whole Christians. Paul adamantly proclaims that we should proclaim the entire counsel of God. Let's not withhold something because we don't like that portion. Let's examine it to figure out what it is God has in store for us through this portion or this passage. Finally, in our reap, uh, almost finally, in our REAP method, now we get to the fun part. We've examined God's word. Now we can apply it. Let's apply this to our life. What principle in this passage points me to God? What do I learn about Jesus here? Am I encouraged to, to, to believe something? Am I encouraged to be something, to become something? Am I encouraged to practice something? Am I encouraged to go do something? Man, what's the application for us out of this passage? And sometimes it's a lot harder than we might make it seem. And finally, prayer. Let's end our time in prayer and thank God for his word and ask him to use it to continue to sharpen us. So we've asked ourselves these questions. How do I view God's word? I mean, what's the purpose? To redeem all of mankind through Jesus Christ. So then, if that's, if that's how I view it, how do I approach it? Well, we understand Satan's purpose to know that he wants us to not be in it no matter what. So let's examine our hearts, find out what's there, pull those out, ask God to change us in that way, and then externally, let's create a plan and stick to it. Okay, now what? What's the process look like? How do I actually study it? And use these practical truths to help you examine God's word and to enjoy your time with the Father. And finally, thank him in prayer that he's given this to you and ask him to help it change you. So now, we ask this question. How do we trust the Bible? I mean, how can we trust the Bible? Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proved to be true. As believers, we believe the best way to interpret Scripture is with Scripture. The Bible affirms the Bible. God's word affirms God's word. Now, at the same time, what do you say to an unbelieving culture? A man once complained to Mark Twain that the Bible was jumbled up, inconsistent, filled with passages that I can't understand. Mark Twain replies, I have more difficulty with the passages I do understand than with the passages I do not understand. The truth is we will always encounter skeptics. Scripture promises us this. But I'll say this. The breadth of this message today is not to make a case for the validity of Scripture. I actually do want to reserve that for another message on uh, the truth of Scripture. But I'll, I will leave us with a small portion as I close out. Dan Wallace, who's probably the world's most foremost evangelical theologian, who actually founded the Center for New Testament Manuscripts. It's in Plano. You didn't get a chance to go up there. It's incredible. They make copies of every biblical manuscript. Dan Wallace says this. We have an embarrassment of riches. This is like a good thing he's saying. I'll break it down for you. Here's what Dan Wallace says. We have 5,824 Greek manuscripts of the Bible. The average size of each of those manuscripts is about 450 pages. That means we have over 2.6 million pages of handwritten Greek manuscripts, over 10,000 in Latin, 10,000 in Albanian and Syrian, 
uh, and Far Eastern texts. We have over 25,000 more extra biblical texts that were written and copied before the printing press. And we have over 1 million quotations by New Testament church fathers that are proved historically accurate. We have over 3.5 million text manuscripts for evidence to affirm not only is the Bible accurate, but also affirming true core beliefs like the deity of Jesus and his resurrection. Let me paint a picture for you, put it into perspective. Let's compare other Greek literature. Average classical Greek writer, Philo, Socrates, has less than 20 copies of his original work. That's a high estimate. Most only have one or two. The average height of total manuscript evidence for every classical Greek author ever composed would mount up to be about four feet high. I'm a shade over 6'2". On a good day, 6'2 and a half. Four feet high. You know how much manuscript and textual evidence we have for the validity of Scripture? Over 5,280 feet high. Over one mile. There's more proof for the resurrection of Jesus than the life of Julius Caesar. But at the end of the day, for some people, it won't matter. Because the truth is, there will be an element of faith that we have to stick to. And when you ask yourself, how can I trust this passage? This is a stinking miracle. Yeah, it is. And there's an element of faith that is going to be required from the believer. Here's the deal. At the end of the day, and I say this to those that pride themselves on manuscript evidence, interpretation, textual variance. Look, you can be about the Bible but not be about Jesus. But you can't be about Jesus and not be about the Bible. I'll close by reading a quote from Phillips Brooks. It's a 19th century Boston pastor who wrote the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. He said, to me, the gospel of the Bible is just one great figure standing with outstretched arms. I don't know about you, but I want to spend every day of 2016 running into those outstretched arms. Generations past were not afforded the luxury of the word of God. The Bible is an extraordinary means of God's grace. So let's treasure it and let's let it be used to change us this year. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to know that we can approach you this morning through your word. Your word that we know is true from cover to cover. God, I pray that you would help us do a few things today and in this year and the weeks ahead. Lord, I pray that for all of us in this room, you would give us a healthy view of your word to understand its purpose, that it's been given to us as one grand narrative for the sake of redeeming the world to yourself through your son, Jesus. And as we look at your word in that way, would you help us to approach it humbly? Would you help us approach it studiously? Would you help us approach it obediently and joyfully? 
and confidently and frequently to enjoy from cover to cover every word that you've written to show us how much you love us. And as we approach it with that mindset, just help the posture of our heart to understand who it is that we're coming to and help us to formulate a plan and to stick to it this year that we might see more of you, that we might get more of you, Jesus. And as we approach you in that way, God, would you help us study your word to look intently into the law that you've given us, to experience the encouragement of every scripture that you have to show us there's hope in the name of your son, Jesus. Help us to examine and to pull out your truth and to enjoy spending time understanding and interpreting and grasping the meaning of the text. And all the while, give us faith to believe that it, all of it's true. Because the truth is, if it's not, all of this is pointless, but we know that it is. Help some of us to be studious about wanting to examine apologetically how we can defend our faith and know why it's true. But for all of us, would you just see a little deeper into our hearts this morning the truth that at the end of the day, it, it, it has to require an element of faith, a faith that only you can give. So help us trust that this is your words for your people to show us how much you love us. We pray that not just today, but each day that we come to your feet to hear more from you, that we would leave looking different. God, would you do what only you were able to do this morning and in 2016? Would you change us? Would you change our hearts to look more like you? Father, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, his most precious most awesome name, the name that is above every name. All God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.